you will be greatly rejoicing when you receive a note, a message from a well-known person that says, I love you with my whole heart. I love you with my whole heart. The sender might be your spouse, your parent, your fiancé, or a close relative and friend. And yes, such a message is very enthralling. The sender very well knows your life situation and concerns with its ups and downs. And being absorbed in all that, you receive the much-needed message of support. I love you with heart and soul. It means the sender is with you in everything and with everything. Well, it could be that you react on this, uh, no, no, I never have received such a message. Well, then I encourage you and, of course, everyone to keep listening. The teaching this afternoon is on Lord's Day 4. God is just and loving in his punishment. First, his punishment is fully deserved. Secondly, it is eternal. Lastly, it is not in conflict with his mercy. Brothers and sisters, the content of Lord's Day 4 is complex, to say the least. It refers to the justice of God, to the disobedience and rebellion of man, even to the instigation of the devil, and then the consequences of man's fall, God's curse. But it also brings up God's mercy. Well, all that is quite something to digest. Even its heart hardly can be described. It's always, I must admit, difficult to, difficult to make a sermon about. What does it all mean that the whole world and our life lie under God's curse? Furthermore, when our confession brings up God's mercy, it immediately points to God with the most loftiest words. Our sin in paradise and our daily sin is confessed to be sin against the most High majesty of God. Finally, the complexity of Lord's Day 4 has become even more a problem for people of today. Well, you know, our culture is focused on man's self, on self-worth, self-help, 
self-performing, and so on. Around us, life, and that is the atmosphere, the culture that we breathe in ourselves to, around us is life, it's, it's, it's very man-centered and self-directed and determined. If you say something a person doesn't like, he or she is immediately up in arms. In such a climate, it's harder to accept biblical truth than in particular the truth that by nature we are dead because of our sin and trespasses. And that, that, that from birth we are even poor and needy our whole life. We are totally dependent creatures. Well, that, doesn't that totally strike out self-worth of man? No wonder that the biblical and the authoritative teaching of our wretched state becomes less and less acceptable. And it also means that sins are regarded as sins no more. Sins of sodomy, of divorce, of abortion, of rebellion against authority. You know, government, you see it all the time. Governments, they have, di they have great difficulty to keep activists under control. So how in the world do we wrestle with the teaching of Lord's Day 4? Let's observe that only three, three Lord's Days deal specifically, specifically with our falling away from God. But that's not merely a miserable introduction of our life that we can forget when dealing with the rest of the catechism teaching. Not at all. The truth of our sin and misery and God's response to that is woven throughout the whole fabric of our confession of faith, the catechism. The truth of our miserable state belongs, so to speak, to the garment, our garment of faith. Time and again through the preaching, we are encouraged to put that garment on. Why? Because that humble but festive garment of faith covers our spiritual nakedness before God and before each other. It makes us acceptable now in the presence of our holy God. What's even more inviting and exciting, the garment of faith becomes our festive dress for the wedding feast of God's Son.
But now let us first deal with question nine. That question is quite daring. It is pastoral, pastoral too. Because that question pops up in our weak human heart very easily. We have heard that we are totally unable to do any good, and God requires that we have to keep the law, but then doesn't God do man and did justice by requiring in his law what we can't do at all? But the answer is crystal clear. A definite no is given. God is not unjust. Unjust. With the heart of catechism, we all as believers say, therefore also, a definite no. It has indeed the significance of absolutely not. God doesn't do us an injustice. Because consider the extraordinary profile of how God had made man. In Genesis 1 and 2, Scripture speaks highly about how man was created. He was made in God's image. So as no other creature, man could talk and walk with God. In the cool of paradise. Man could respond to God's love of him with his own love. He could rejoice with God's glory. In man's own glory. Yes, Adam and Eve could care, protect, and develop God's creation. In holy marriage, they could bring forth new life. There were hardly any limits or borders in paradise. Yet, yes, there was a huge difference. God was God. And man was man. God was the sovereign king of all. Adam was not a king God. He was a suzerain king. That means a ruler under God. And therefore he should not emulate God. Trying to take the place of God. That would be evil rebellion to the most high majesty of God. And well then, in order to safeguard Adam for that rebellion, God had made one definite no road or no take sign in the garden. And children here, they also with us know what, what was forbidden, strictly forbidden to Adam and Eve. They should not go on that road to the forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then also not eat from its fruit. Such a deed would make man guilty of grabbing God's crown. That is total insubordination. Actually, that kind of revolt had already happened somewhere. It already had happened in heaven. Scripture doesn't tell us much about that evil event, only that it happened by the devil. 
He was the instigator of the mutiny by God's fallen angels in heaven. And the devil, God's opponent, Satan, became the ruler of darkness. Well, in one or another way, the devil broke into paradise. And there he hid himself. And guess what? Where? In the forbidden tree. He managed to lure man past the stop sign of that tree. He made him also ignore the no-take sign. And unbelievingly, with his insidious lies, he prompted man to eat from the tree. Though God's opponent motivated Eve first to eat, and, and after her Adam too, man can never use the luring words of Satan as an excuse. Man is guilty. Man is guilty for the full 100%. He went past the words of God. Their maker had given them all the necessary skills and tools for a life of love and obedience to him. Look, God didn't make man a liar, a thief, an adulterer. Neither was he created as a murderer or a, or a blasphemer or a scorner, a scorner of God. Beloved, through the word of God, the Holy Spirit makes us extremely careful that we don't argue or rebel against our sovereign God let alone that we make excuses. We cannot hide behind the devil. Neither can we do so behind Adam and Eve. For you remember last Sunday's afternoon sermon on Lord's Day 3. Then it was made crystal clear that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so therefore it is perfectly legitimate to interchange Adam's name for ours, as I, during the sermons, already did and uh, will do continuously. It is legitimate to interchange Adam's name for ours. In Lord's Day 4, then, the testimony of Scripture is loud and clear. We, we sinned deliberately, willfully, in paradise, we ignored the warning signs. There, man, Adam, and Eve went totally off track. There, yes, we wrecked our life at the tree of good and evil. And yes, there, we robbed ourselves of all the beauty God had clothed us with. We are guilty before God. Like David says in Psalm 51, we need to confess against you. You alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It is also true that in my and your heart, the same desire boils and tosses as it did with Adam. God 
goes scot-free. With him there is no injustice at all. We nevertheless will see that in Christ, God has set his heart on us to bring us through the depths of sin and misery to the heights of eternal glory. And yet, that way goes through God's punishment. Question and answer 10. We can all agree that the guilty one needs punishment. If it concerns only a light offense, the punishment also would be light. Well, how is sin characterized? In question and answer 10, then the catechism uses the word apostasy. That word generally is known because it is in the catechism. But actually, what does apostasy mean? In 1563, the Halber Catechism was written in the German language. And the English word apostasy is then a translation of the German word Abfall. Abfall. That points to a horrible event. A crashing down. For example, like a crash of an airplane full with people. You also may think of unfaithfulness in marriage. Adultery leads to divorce. So that separation. Apostasy is breaking a strong bond. Well, such a bad event happened in paradise. Man divorced himself from God. Man cut the bond with God and made a terrible tumble, an upfall. The action was totally done by man, by us. Man forsook God and he even ran away from God, hiding himself in the bushes. What did God do after that terrible event? Did he immediately now also drop man, forsaking him in all his misery? We had thrown ourselves into? No. God was searching him out. He was calling. Adam, Adam, where are you? You know, God wouldn't drop Adam into nothing. Neither would he turn a blind eye to man's apostasy. The most beautiful piece of creation, the pearl of man's in his, of, of, of God, that, that man was in God's image. That pearl, so to speak, that pearl was thrown into the mud. Man did it. By taking the cap of the devil. The holy God didn't let that go. 
Our confession describes his reaction that he is terribly angry about our disobedience. And that reaction shouldn't have been a surprise to Adam at all, and not either to us. Because at Adam's job's description, to take care and to be ruler of the earth, was added a clear clause. This one. If he would not heed God's prohibition in regard to the tree of good and evil, then God said, you will die death. That's how it is written in Genesis. If man would transgress God's commandment, he would die eternal death. If God's people leave him, if they divorce themselves from him, God will forsake them with this eternal punishment. And the Old Testament shows that God's people continue to load a mountain of wrongdoing on themselves. That was met with God's punishment of famine, pestilence. You read it in the prophets and also the history of kings and, and the chronicles. God's punishments come with famine, pestilence, earthquakes. And at the end, even with the darkness of the exile. The New Testament shows that, God's, that, that God administers Indeed, a severe punishment. Think of Judas Iscariot, Ananias, Sapphira, Romans 1 and 2 also show that God is serious about punishing man. And also in the book of Revelation, think of all the bowls of God's wrath. Also darkness. It's God is serious, beloved, about punishing man for his sins, for now and eternity. Hell. Ultimately, hell. Now, in regard to God's severe punishment, two cautionary comments have to be made. First, it is God who punishes, not man, not we. Therefore, beloved, never abuse the truth of God's severe anger as if you are in the judgment seat Lovingly, lovingly, pastorally warn people for the consequences if they disobey God and should not separate themselves from God. And secondly, never forget that God's word first of all proclaims good news. The good news of his care and love. So foremost, it will take fear and anxieties away from people. No, never scare people with God's words, even about his 
punishments. Never give the impression as if God is one of fire and brimstone. He is not after the death of man, but that he lives. You know, Ezekiel 33. And therefore, and I'll say, I say it a bit crude, never go around as a religious terrorist, showing as if God would be a sadist. God certainly is not dead set being after the annihilation of people, swinging a hellish sword. On the other hand, on the other hand, there is no possibility to downplay God's severe punishment of sin whatsoever. As we have seen already, it is stipulated in the covenant between God and man. And frequently, God's severe wrath over sin is stated in Holy Scriptures and in the preaching of the Word. It's also mentioned at our baptism, dealt with at the Lord's Supper. No one can and will escape God's punishment of sin. And don't we see the reality of this truth all around us? There is confusion, rebellion, conflicts, wars, climatic calamities, hunger, pandemics. Sickness and death. Oh, that devastating event of death as a clear evidence of God's punishment of man's sin. What an upsetting, beloved, what an upsetting reality death is. And if you permit me, then I I make a very personal note here. When sitting at my wife's Helene's bed and she breathed her last, then this thought went through my mind. If man wouldn't have sinned, death wouldn't occur. Death wouldn't occur. A congregation, brothers and sisters, young people, at the bottom of all our pain and anxiety in this world lies the truth of our enormous guilt of sin committed in paradise. And every day, the Halber Catechism then speaks about our original sin as well as our actual sins. It is indeed a mountain of wrongs. And we, man, is punished for them. But thankfully, there is more to say. God's punishment doesn't conflict 
with his mercy. Now the answer, question, question 11, repeats God's severe punishment. True. But it also testifies of something else. The answer starts with a redeeming statement. God is indeed merciful. God is merciful. That's the truth of his word. Remember that last Sunday afternoon. Also a, a very nice characterization was used. A, a reverse moment of event. It was said by our minister, through Adam, man became condemnable before God. But he said, then is there the reverse action. Through Christ, man became acceptable before God. Never forget that. Through Adam, man became condemnable before God. Through Christ, man became acceptable before God. Now this afternoon, we again focused on the truth that through Adam, man plunged himself in the sinkhole of sorrow. And yet the reverse is that through God's mercy in Christ, we are lifted up from there unto his heavenly feast. Our own sinkhole, over our own sinkhole, I should say, over our sinkhole, God, so to speak, erected the cross of his Son. And his cross consisted of two beams. One can say, you can say, that the one beam stands for God's justice. And the other stands for God's mercy. Both God's justice and mercy are also pictured in our Lord's parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Briefly, we give uh, our attention to that parable. It is more or less the last teaching to the Jews. Though they are God's favorite ones, the Jews, they will be punished since they don't accept Jesus as the Lord, as God's Son, as the Savior of the world. Now, in the parable, these Jews are referred to in the three rounds of invitation to the king's feast, the beginning of that parable. They ignore the invitations and continue with their own life's activities. And others even brutally reject the king's kindness by killing its messengers. And the king punishes them severely through the army. God is just. But the king wants his banquet hall to be filled with people, sharing his joy with them. So he sends messengers out to the crossroads where people would flock together for their daily work or just hang around. People who did good things, but also bad stuff, 
So the gospel goes through all the, the world, reaches us as well. So we are called from those crossroads. And so that brings all the guests in the banquet hall. The tables were all occupied by guests. And they all had received festal garments. They waited for the feast to begin. Then the king arrives. He is keen to join the cheerful and celebrating crowd. But suddenly an eerie silence filled the room. We have come to a point that makes the parable very intrigued. Or maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe shocked would be better to say. We truly wonder what in this parable the, word, the, the Lord had in mind to point to that one man, only one man. And that man is totally out of tune with everything and out of step with everybody. He had not put the festive garment on that was given to him. He didn't put that garment on. He sat there with his shabby street clothes at the table of the king. Then the king is extremely angry. He retorted, friend, how do you manage to, to be part of this feast? You are not worthy and welcome here. The man was dumbfounded. And the king orders, bind him hand and foot and cast him in and out to, into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Description, description of hell. A judgment, that judgment gives us the shivers, doesn't it? But that man was sent to hell. Now, congregation, who was that one man? Think about it. Who was that one man? Think about it in the light of the catechism teaching this afternoon. The context, of course, is important. The Lord spoke it in the face of his cross. He would be the stone rejected by the builders. But again, who then was that rebellious one man? If I am thinking about it, and I did it a lot, us in the light, of the catechism teaching, if I am thinking of that one man, it dawned on me. That's me. That's me. Often I wear the shabby clothes of sin, keeping grudges, 
don't do the things God asks of me, namely that I totally surrender myself to him in the joy of faith. I don't answer this question for you. But I have to say, what about you, brother, sister, you young man, you young lady? Do you clothe yourselves with the clothes of faith? What are you doing with your load of sins? Praise be to God, the Son of God, has become man. The Son of God has become man. The Heidelberg Catechism in the next Lord's Day shows that truth. Jesus Christ is man. And he took my place. And he took your place. As a lamb, he let himself be taken, staying also Dumbfounded, he was dumb before his shearers, dumb at his arrest, and even be disrobed. He was bound so that we are set free from sin. On the cross, he humbled himself in body and soul to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell. He was our substitute. You see, God is indeed merciful. Constantly, we are now under the power of the gospel news, the good news. Even the children know, can give a description of the good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, rejoice in that gospel message, beloved. The gospel message in which Christ expresses I love you with my whole heart. Amen. <clears throat> this Amen song, we will sing Psalm 118, the stanzas 6 and 8. <clears throat>